Does the Devil Really Exist? by Pastor Reed Benson. Most Christians take for granted the existence of the devil. While there are different conceptions regarding the power and influence of this evil personality, throughout the Christian era, the actual existence of the devil has been assumed as a biblical point of truth. According to renowned Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff, it was not until the late 18th century and the rise of rationalism that the spirit world was deemed to be imaginary, and liberal theologians began to accommodate this rationalism with their own denial of any and all spiritual beings, especially the devil. From the book Systemic Theology, page 143. Today, one does occasionally encounter a person who claims to believe the Bible to be the authority for all truth, and yet denies the existence of a spiritual being called the devil, also known as Satan. Often, these no-devil advocates are sincere, but motives and intentions set aside, is it biblically sound to teach that the devil, or Satan, is imaginary? With scripture as our touchstone of fact, let us explore this idea. First, we shall begin with an examination of angels. Do good angels exist? Yes, the biblical evidence for the existence of spiritual beings called angels is abundant. Two were mentioned by name, Michael and Gabriel. While both the Old and New Testaments contain descriptions of angelic activity, that angelic beings exist in the plain teaching of Scripture. Furthermore, angels are created beings which have a non-material existence. They possess more knowledge than mortal man, and do not age and die as humans do. Although they can take on a physical appearance, their natural condition is incorporeal, meaning not made of material substance. While their gifts and talents exceed that of mortal man, their power and knowledge are indeed limited, for they are created beings. Their original purpose for existence is to act as servants of God, providing messages to man, aiding and succoring humankind, and offering praise to God in heavenly realms. A few passages are invaluable in proving the existence of angels. The first reference to an angel is in Genesis 16, verse 7 through 10, when Hagar was wandering in the desert. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself unto her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Here we see an angel offering comfort to Hagar and providing her a message from God. Another well-known account of angelic activity was when two angels visited Lot in the city of Sodom for the purpose of rescue. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. From Genesis 19 verse 1. Reading further into this chapter highlights angelic gifts. It also shows that they had the ability to cause blindness in people who thought to assault them. 
Consider Judges 13 verses 1 through 2, when an angel visited Samson's mother. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren, and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive, and bear a son. The rest of the chapter describes this visitation in more detail, again indicating they have capabilities that mortal man does not. The New Testament tells of angels continuing to function in similar roles. Most of us remember well the passage where the angel Gabriel visited Mary. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. From Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. Another biblical account worth remembering is that of Peter, who had been imprisoned and chained up when an angel rescued him. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out, and followed him. And wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out, and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. From Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. This is only a sampling of passages that we could consider to establish the simple fact that good angels do exist. Other verses from the Bible that help flesh out their origins and functions include Genesis 2, verse 1, Nehemiah 9, verse 6, Job 38, verse 7, Psalm 8, 5, Psalm 33, verse 6, Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, 1 Peter 1, verse 12, 2 Peter 2, verse 11, 
Revelation 8 verse 1, and Revelation 14 verse 10. While I could cite many other passages, this amount should suffice to establish the absolute reality of good angels. Do sinful angels exist? Yes. Scripture does not reveal as much information as we might like about angels who sinned, and thus might be thought of as evil or wicked angels. Yet, we can find enough solid pieces of evidence in Scripture to assert with certainty that evil angels are real. One writer who resists this idea argues that angels cannot sin. They have no free will and cannot choose. This suggestion is a logical fallacy. Angels are obviously sentient beings who have the ability to think. This is unassailably true. Any creature that can think can choose. Making choices is what constitutes thinking. While this doesn't mean they have unlimited choices or make those choices in a vacuum without other factors that do indeed limit their operations, it does mean they have at least one simple choice that every sentient being possesses when their creator gives instructions. They retain the choice to obey or disobey. This free will is a precious gift from God to all thinking beings, angelkind and mankind. It's what set angels and us apart from plants and lower animals that can only react in accordance with the pre-programmed set of instructions or to a chess program that responds in accordance to its internal software. But as intriguing as the question of free will versus determinism is, it is really irrelevant to the subject at hand, for the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that there were angels that sinned, that is, they disobeyed God. Why they did so is secondary. What their sin actually was is also not necessary to ascertain for our purposes at present. All we must understand for now is that angels have the ability to sin and to disobey God. Three passages establish this point clearly. As part of an exhortation to remind his readers that God punished those who have disobeyed in the past, Peter cited several examples in 2 Peter chapter 2. He mentioned the wicked world before Noah in verse 5, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6, and also some angels. Read this. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment. From 2 Peter 2 verse 4. From this, we are forced to conclude two simple thoughts. One is this. At some time in the past, a group of angels sinned. Two, God restrained them so he could judge them. Scripture does not tell us what the sin was or why they committed it, but they clearly chose badly, and God's hand of judgment will one day be upon them. They cannot escape from their place of confinement in hell. Sinful angels exist. A second witness from Scripture is in Jude verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. This verse, at least in isolation, 
does not identify their sin except to tell us that some angels did not stay in their appointed residence. Instead, they abandoned their tasks. For this choice, this disobedient action, God had them imprisoned in some manner appropriate for spiritual beings, so that they can be judged for their wrongdoing. Then the next verse, in Jude 7, compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sin was giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. This opens the possibility that the sin of the angels was similar, perhaps sexual in nature. As interesting as that is, it is not directly relevant to our immediate point. We do not need to know what sin the angels committed, only that they committed some act of disobedience. Once again, wicked angels exist. A third citation from scripture that we find in Job chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. We don't know what the folly, mistake, or sin was that these angels committed, yet it's plain that they displeased God, broke his trust and confidence, and sinned, just like mankind sins. They had a choice to obey or not, and they chose disobedience. Disobedient angels exist. Let's summarize a few limited points that we can state with certainty about angels thus far. God created these sentient beings and gave them the gift of free will to choose to obey or disobey. Many, presumably most, angels have remained obedient and should be regarded as good angels. Some disobeyed and can be considered evil or wicked angels. At least some of these disobedient evil angels were confined and await judgment. Do wicked angels have a leader? Yes, the Bible is also quite plain on this point as well. Should we be surprised that a group of wicked angels would have a prominent one among themselves whom they regard as their leader? Consider the following passages, noting the personal pronouns and the broad phraseology. In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke of his return and the judgment that he will render at that time. Often called the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus described what he would say to those who anger him. From Matthew 25, verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Observe that the everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. These wicked angels are described as a possession of the devil, not as if he owns them, but that he is their leader and influences them, perhaps directing their actions. The wicked angels have a leader called the devil. John painted a graphic picture for us with this description in Revelation 12, verse 7 and 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. 
and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This image of angelic war in heaven between good and evil angels, each led by their respective captains, is fascinating. There's a great deal we can learn from this passage regarding our topic, but for now, let's simply note that we have a team, a war band, an army, that loses. While Michael is the captain of the good angels who win, the losing force is comprised of the angels that follow he who is, called the devil, and Satan. It was his angels that were cast out of heaven with him. This army of wicked angels plainly has a leader who is far from imaginary, an angel himself who exercises some kind of special influence and power among them. His persuasive ability is considerable, for in this passage, he deceiveth the whole world. There is much we don't know about this passage, however. Many theologians believe this war was long ago. Some think it's prophetic and yet to occur, but whenever it did or does occur, it's plain enough that the wicked angels have a leader, a prominent one among themselves who is called the devil or Satan, and two other appellations are given to this prominent wicked angel, the great dragon and that old serpent. For now, we won't pursue the implications of these monikers, but suffice it to say that the possible implications are tantalizing. The wicked angels have a leader, himself also an angel, called the devil and Satan. Is this leader of evil angels, the devil, Satan, presently confined like some of his other followers? No, the Bible does not reveal why he is not, but it is evident from a number of passages that he still enjoys liberty. Consider 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Notice how he walks about in this passage. Another passage worthy of our scrutiny is this, from Matthew 13, verse 39. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. In this case, the devil sowed the tares. He was actively creating a problem. Why is this influential, wicked angel free to cause trouble? Perhaps it's part of God's providential plan that the devil be available to continuously test and tempt people. Scripture gives little information as to why. But the question as to why the devil is at liberty does not really have to be fully answered. For our purposes, we need only know that he is real, he is evil, he is free to work a measure of malicious mischief. Doesn't the word Satan mean human adversary? No. Those who argue that Satan does not exist make an unwarranted and careless assumption over the fact that the word Satan has an ancient Chaldean origin. Satanus, that means adversary. They assume that because the Hebrew language borrowed this word from the Chaldean tongue, they likewise adopted the concept 
that there is an evil spirit equal to God that battles things out in an ongoing cosmic conflict that never ends because they are counterweights to one another. This is extremely sloppy scholarship. Why? Because the notion that there is an everlasting spiritual conflict between two equivalent deities is not Chaldean in origin, but Persian. Persia is the old name for Iran and is not connected to Chaldea. This cosmic struggle is supposedly manifested between the Persian gods of Ahura Mazda and Ahriman, part of the Zoroastrian religion, and did not develop for at least a thousand years after the Hebrews borrowed Satanus from the ancient Chaldean language. Furthermore, and of tremendous importance, nowhere in the Bible do we find that Satan is in any way equivalent to God. The Hebrews did not import that idea from the Chaldeans, the Persians, or from anyone else. Satan is a mere created being, far, far inferior in power and knowledge to Jehovah. Additionally, there are many words in Hebrew that were borrowed from Chaldean. It would be a great surprise if that were not the case, since Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, came from Chaldea. Actually, it's more accurate to say that the Hebrew and Chaldean languages arose together and are linguistic cousins, much like German and English. In this respect, it may be hard to say with certainty who was borrowing from whom. And what does it matter if Satan does mean adversary? Is that somehow inaccurate? Of course not, for if there is a strong and influential wicked angel who is the leader of others like unto himself, he certainly is an adversary to both Jehovah and any men who seek to follow the righteous ways of God. What is truly a faulty assumption is to argue that Satan is a human adversary, which is exactly what the no-devil advocates suggest. To maintain their position, they're forced to adopt this opinion to solve the problem presented to them in the book of Job. In the first two chapters of Job, the Bible records Satan appearing before God and making a case against Job. Since this famous story is a problem for those who insist that a wicked angel who carries the title Satan doesn't exist, they assert that the Satan in Job is a human adversary, and the whole discussion with God does not take place in heaven, but somewhere on earth. This materialistic interpretation is unwarranted highly implausible, and with its implication, wreaks havoc on the entire book of Job. It forces one to argue that the sons of God who appear before God are humans, that Jehovah's court is on earth rather than the heavenly realms, and that the massive creative power of God described in the latter chapters of the book are the works of an earth-bound deity. Finally, if Satan simply means adversary or human adversary without any special connotations, why did the translators of the Bible not use that specific word? Why carry over into English the word Satan? The answer is because the context of the various passages in question demands that the reader perceive this is not an ordinary adversary, but some kind of evil personality who is beyond the material natural world.
Is the word devil a euphemism for strong desires in a person? No. That is the opinion of most no-devil advocates as well. But they are absolutely incorrect. Such a notion is derived from the fact that St. Paul's epistles contain several warnings to Christians to watch out for the devil. Then, in adjacent verses, he also warns the believers to be on guard against their own sinful inclinations. By conflating these dual warnings into one, they argue that the word devil is a euphemism or code word that means strong desires. They argue that since the word devil means diabolos in Greek, meaning traducer or accuser in English, then this is our own strong passions accusing us. This makes no sense. It does nothing to eliminate the obvious possibility that this accuser is an outside spiritual entity. Why do they deploy this argument? They do so to get around one of the most obvious and plain passages in all of Scripture that tells us that there indeed is an evil spiritual personality, a wicked angel known as the devil. It is he who confronted Jesus. Read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-11, through 11, where Jesus fasted for 40 days and was then tempted by the devil in three different ways. No devil proponents insist that when the devil suggested that Jesus should turn the stones to bread, it was merely Jesus' own strong hunger pains that were speaking. They assert that when the devil suggested Jesus should throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple to be caught by angels, this was Jesus' own strong desire speaking to him. What desire would that be? A desire to show off? Perhaps a desire to feel the breeze in his hair? A whole line of reasoning that no devil advocates present is untenable. Read about the third temptation the devil makes to Jesus. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. From Matthew 4, verse 8 through 11. No devil proponents suggest that Jesus' own internal desires to be king over all the world is the force speaking in his ears. But that makes no logical sense, for Jesus already was king over all the earth, as he has always been. Look closely, and one can see that Jesus did not rebuke the devil for making him the offer to be king of the world, but for trying to persuade Jesus to worship the devil. Does that mean that somehow Jesus had a strong desire to worship the devil? No! Such a suggestion is absurd. The suggestion that the devil speaking to Jesus in Matthew 4 verse 1 through 11 was really Jesus' own strong passions or desires is an exceptional stretch of honest Bible hermeneutics. Such an interpretation absolutely shreds this wonderful narrative into tatters. If this represents sound reasoning from Scripture, then no doubt I can find a passage from the Bible 
to prove that Elvis is still alive. You can find a place that proves that cows can jump over the moon, and someone else can search out an interpretation that proves the three men cast into Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace were really the three blind mice. So, if the word devil is not a euphemism for strong desires, what does it mean? It turns out that the word devil in Hebrew sometimes means seir, or an he-goat, perhaps like a satyr in mythology, a pagan symbol. Sometimes the word devil in Hebrew means an evil spirit or demon. In the Greek language, the word devil also often means demon or evil spirit, and sometimes is diabolos, a false accuser. All of this information is interesting, perhaps useful, but it does not prove the devil's non-existence, or even imply that there is not an influential evil angel who leads many others like himself. If anything, these word studies suggest that the devil is indeed some kind of wicked spiritual entity. Consider this passage that describes the devil as having his own will, clearly implying his own intellect and independent existence, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. This is a warning to believers that the devil has his own will, his own desires, his own intellect, his own clever ploys and snares, and the devil has the capability to take someone captive. By taking them captive, we perceive from that this means they have been fooled into abandoning the truth, from which a person will hopefully repent. This passage teaches us that the devil is a bit like a wartime spy, an agent of falsehood, deception, and clever false teachings who can capture the minds of unsuspecting people. By the way, is there any deception that would be potentially greater than convincing your enemy that you don't even exist, and therefore they need not be on guard? Consider this parallel example from history. The Japanese successfully deceived the Americans that no Japanese naval vessels existed anywhere near Pearl Harbor, when in fact a huge aircraft carrier strike force was quite close. This allowed them to attack and destroy their sleeping enemy, achieving a stunning victory. Now, if the devil can convince Christians that he doesn't even exist, does this not make us more vulnerable to his sinister schemes? The devil exists. He is not a euphemism for our own strong desires. He is a true spiritual entity with his own intellect, will, and plans, all of them aimed to discourage and destroy naive Christian people. Do evil spirits exist? Yes. Any plain reading of scripture makes it exceptionally difficult to honestly get around this biblical reality. Yet, for the sake of consistency, no devil proponents are forced to insist that evil spirits are also imaginary. After all, if 
evil spirits do exist, it's a small step to suggest that there is one among them that is more influential than the others. That might term the devil. Thus, the no-devil advocates assert that the many accounts of Jesus and the apostles casting out evil spirits and demons in the gospel and acts were really something else. They insist that what was truly happening was that Jesus and the apostles were healing people of physical afflictions, blindness, illness, lame legs, internal disease, not removing an evil spirit from that person's presence. This opinion forces one to read these stories in a very loose manner. But there are several records of evil spirits or demons being cast out that have nothing to do with physical infirmities. Let's look at the story in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. Following Paul was a damsel who had a spirit of divination, which her masters were pleased to see in action, for they earned money from this young lady's demonic activity. Paul perceived that there was a problem and cast the spirit out. Upon discovering that their source of income was now dried up, the damsel's masters made trouble for Paul and Silas eventually managing to have them arrested and cast into prison. The point of this story for our purpose is that there is no feasible way to deny that this was anything but an evil spirit, for the girl bore no physical affliction whatsoever while the evil spirit was upon her. A second example of an evil spirit that didn't cause any physical affliction is that which God allowed to descend upon King Saul. This is mentioned in several places, but the best place to start might be 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 through 23, where we discover that the evil spirit troubled Saul in his mind, but would depart when David played his harp. Later, in 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 through 11, this evil spirit troubled Saul's mood so much that David's music was no longer sufficient to drive it away and Saul attempted to pin David to the wall of his palace with a javelin. Again, there was no physical affliction involved. Consider also this case where an evil spirit didn't only not cause a physical infirmity, but it actually strengthened the person upon whom it rested. From Acts chapter 19, verse 13 through 16. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons, one of Sceva, a Jew, and chief of priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on, and overcame them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It is evident that evil spirits do more than cause people to be sick or infirm. Jesus believed that evil spirits were real, not imaginary, for he taught his disciples how they could more effectively cast them out. From Mark chapter 9, verses 25 through 29. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. 
And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. If Jesus knew that evil spirits didn't exist, this would have been the perfect time to instruct his disciples of such a fact. But instead, he counseled them how they could more effectively cast out evil spirits. It's plain that Jesus believed in the reality of evil spirits. To suggest otherwise makes our Savior a liar. Without a doubt, evil spirits do exist. It is thus no surprise that a real spiritual being known as the devil or Satan also exists. A few concluding remarks. It's important to understand that while the devil exists and is dangerous, described as being wily in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 and eager to destroy in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he is not all-powerful or all-knowing, nor can he be anywhere except one place at a time. He is clever and influential, but he is limited in what he can do. Satan would have no power whatsoever except that God gives him limited space over which he can range, all within the bounds of God's providence and purposes. God is sovereign, and compared to Jehovah, the devil is a fragile, pathetic, bitter fool. Finally, consider this observation. There appears to be a clear trend among those who adopt the no-devil doctrine. Most writers who press this view also deny evil spirits, wicked angels, and the spirit world in general. They deny that man has a soul that exists apart from the body, and they further insist that hell is also imaginary. Essentially, they are materialists, like under the Sadducees of the New Testament. They don't believe in anything except what they can feel and touch. In their eagerness to dispense with Satan, to be consistent, they have to reject many other spiritual aspects of the Bible. Please don't allow your theology to take you in this direction and undermine many central features of scriptural truth. Yes, the devil does exist. Be on guard, but do not be alarmed. God will protect his people, as revealed in Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11. The devil is no match for our Savior Jesus Christ, and we walk under the protection of his blood and banner.